If you turn to Genesis chapter 12, as we continue the story of Abram and Sarai, probably most of you, if you've walked with the Lord for a while, you recognize that after every single triumph, after every great victory, very often the next thing that happens is some kind of major fight. Amen? You, you, this is the way the enemy works, tries to work on our, sometimes our pride, sometimes our self-sufficiency, uh, sometimes our arrogance. Every once in a while on even the victories that have been gained for the Lord in our lives. And Abram is an example of that. And tonight as we finish off chapter 12, we see this man who is by all accounts up to this point both faithful and flawed at the same time. Anybody in here in that category of faithful yet flawed? Yeah, you want to be faithful, but at the same time, your implementation is not quite perfect. Amen? You, you kind of struggle in those little things sometimes. Or you get yourself into situations to where maybe there's a very logical reason for that little bit of compromise that's going to come in your life. And this passage tonight is one of those beautiful passages that both uh, instructs and exhorts and at the same time causes us to look at our own lives and, and to take stock of where we are in the work that the Lord's doing in us. Because Abram is taken off from Ur of the Chaldees, and he's taken this journey up to Haran. He's now gathered some people with him, along with his nephew Lot, and they've actually made the journey they were supposed to make. They were never supposed to stop in Haran, but they did. And so there's a little bit of a mistake there in his life. And now he does the faith journey, and he makes that last 400 miles and gets to Canaan, so he's traveled from uh, what would be northern Syria uh, down through the entire country of what we would call Syria and through Lebanon uh, and into what we would call modern-day Israel, um, right into the heart of modern-day Israel. Modern-day Nablus is where Shechem is at. And so he's made the journey. He's now uh, there in his tent. He's built his altar He's announced that he's going to be faithful to the Lord, and everywhere you find Abram, you find him dwelling in a tent. He's a pilgrim, he's a sojourner, and you find him with an altar. But the first trial that comes along, the trial gets him. And we'll see that tonight. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for the encouragement that someone who is listed as the father of faith uh, also is a picture of our humanness and sometimes our propensity to not do the things that you've asked us to do as well as we can do them. And Lord, your forgiveness in his life, your mercy in his life, your grace in his life, your protection over his life, your care and concern for both he and those that are traveling with him, for you overriding uh, even our bad decisions, Lord that you have been faithful to us, and we thank you for being faithful, and pray that now as we read your word, that we would uh, join in with Abram and Sarai as they take this journey to some place you never intended them to go, and we see you be faithful to them. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
So they've made the faith journey. They're where they're supposed to be. And here comes verse 10, Genesis chapter 12. And now there was famine in the land. Now this land has been promised to them. It's an inheritance. It's supposed to be a beautiful place. It's a place where I'm sure Abram is going, man, we made this more than 1,000-mile journey, and we're expecting things to be pretty well. Anybody in here made a journey for the Lord, and you expect it to be well, but immediately you're hit with something that's like, where in the world did that come from? It's kind of the story of faith, amen? There was famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to dwell there, for the famine was severe in the land. And so the first thing I want you to see is there is a logical reason for Abram to make the decision to leave where he's supposed to be to go somewhere else. And I want you to hear that very careful, carefully. There is a logical reason for him to leave where he's supposed to be and go somewhere else. There's a logical reason. In other words, when he thinks about it, when all he does is examine the facts and he takes God out of the equation and only looks at it from human logic, this decision actually makes sense. It seems like it might even be the right thing to do. And while you should never simply put your brains on the shelf and just go about life, well, you know, I'm just walking by faith, man. You also have to be very careful that you don't think God right out of the equation. Because we have a propensity to do that. It's like, well, it makes sense to me, so I'll just do it this way. There's a famine in the land. There's a surplus in Egypt. That's where we'll go. But the fact of the matter is God had called them to stay in Canaan. That was their land. Egypt was not their land and the moment they choose to go down to Egypt, and notice the word down, because when you go down to Egypt, when you go to the world, when you go down, you will be going down. And it came to pass that when he was close to entering Egypt, that he said to Sarai, his wife, Indeed, I know that you are a hot chick. You're a, beautiful, you're a beautiful woman. You have a beautiful countenance. A woman of beautiful countenance. You are really good looking. Now that's quite a compliment because she's near 80 years old by now. So she must have been a really good looking lady. And therefore, it will happen that when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. And they'll kill me, but they'll let you live. Now, this is where the story would end if I were Sarai, because I would have just killed him right there. It's like, are you kidding me? Because I'm beautiful, I've kept myself for you, Abram. You want me to lie, and you want me to tell them a story that's only partially true, because remember, Sarai is actually his half-sister, so it's not totally a lie, it's just a half lie. But basically, because you're beautiful, they're going to kill me, they'll let you live. Please say you are my sister. That it may be well with me for your sake, that I may live because of you. 
that is one selfish dude. It's like he's taken this journey of faith, he's listened to the voice of the Lord, and now he thinks that the way he's going to accomplish the will of the Lord is with the arm of flesh. And this is something we will all struggle with until we go home to be with Jesus. Trusting in our flesh, trusting in our horses and our chariots, trusting in pretty much anything and everything except the will of God. The arm of faith, the work of the Spirit. He says, look, you know, it's going to be trouble for me. (laughs) I want it to be well with me. And you notice there's nothing, you know, it's going to be fine with you. He makes no mention whatsoever. Uh, It's going to go well for you. And then the princes of Pharaoh saw her and commended her to Pharaoh. Now, there's some nicety going on here in the English language that is a little less nice in the original Hebrew. Basically, the Pharaoh's princes are saying, this lady looks really good. She'd do well in Pharaoh's harem. In other words, they've taken note of nothing but her physical attributes. And that does not mean that Pharaoh is going, wow, she can be one of my advisors. She's going to be, you know, just brilliant in my cabinet. She is being lumped in with the rest of, in essence, Pharaoh's playthings. And as much as we'd like to sanitize this and turn it into a story that is just simply a, you know, kind of a mistake on Abram's part, he has actually put his wife at tremendous risk. And there is tremendous reason to believe that she was undoubtedly taken advantage of by Pharaoh and possibly his men. That was their intent. The Egyptians had no formal marriage rights. They just took women as they saw fit. And so Sarai is being added to Pharaoh's harem. It's an ugly, ugly, ugly scene. But it's going to be okay for Abram. This is what compromise does in the life of someone who's a believer. You put yourself into situations you never, ever thought you would get into. When you begin to tell little lies, when you begin to have little compromises, when you uh, put those little things of the flesh ahead of the things of the Spirit, this is often where you end up. And the woman's taken to Pharaoh's house. And he treated Abram well for her sake. In other words, hey, thanks for bringing me your sister. I'm going to reward you. This is like one of those stories you're like, are you kidding me moments? And he had sheep and oxen and male donkeys and male and female servants and female donkeys and camels. Abram is rewarded for turning his wife over to another man because he lied about it. Very often this story gets told in a fairly passing way, in a sanitized way, and I'm wanting to tell you how it really is. If you read anything about the Egyptian culture, when, when they took women into their homes, 
It was not so they could have casual conversation. And so Abram was content with trading his wife for possessions. And here's where it touches our modern world. When we make compromises in our lives, when we go down to Egypt, when we go the world's ways, we very often forfeit our family. We, we give up that which should be holy unto us, unto the Lord, for the sake of possessions, for a better position, for more money, for maybe a bigger house. And while none of those things are inherently evil, and while none of those things make us compromise, very often when we compromise, we see these things come our way. So we, we learn to live in essence by having a little compromise in our lives because we can get ahead in this world. I've listened to story after story after story of people who have taken positions in companies, who have moved to new homes, who have cheated on their taxes, who have done all manner of things believing that they needed to go down to Pharaoh in order for it to be well with them. Let me tell you, it will never be well with you when you go down to Egypt. It may seem like it for a moment, because the enemy is able to reward. The enemy can offer you goods. He did so to Jesus, did he not? What did he say to Jesus on the Mount of Temptation? Well, you're hungry. Why don't you command these stones to be turned to bread, you know, after all? If you'll just bow down to me, everyone will worship you. Why don't you cast yourself off of this cliff? Will not the angels be given charge over you? You see, the enemy works to tempt us to compromise what we know God has spoken to us. This is perhaps one of the greatest stories in all of the Old Testament about the danger of just a little bit of compromise. There was a real famine. There was a real reason to leave. It wasn't, he was not insane for thinking that, hey, I want my family to live. But he took his family someplace where he should never have gone. But the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because, because of Sarai, Abram's wife. In spite of Abraham's unfaithfulness, God was faithful to protect Sarai, to, to cause Pharaoh to know, man, there's something seriously wrong here. God can even get a hold of the heart of pagan kings. God can work in spite of the fact that we've made mistakes, and he is able to save to the uttermost. And Pharaoh called to Abram and said, what is this that you've done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? I might have taken her as my wife. In other words, he hadn't sealed the deal yet. But he was thinking about it. And now, therefore, here is your wife. Take her and go your way. God inflicting 
such pain upon Pharaoh that he realizes, he, even being the heathen that he was, that this wasn't the right thing to do. It is a shame on the church when heathens act morally and God's people act immorally. It's one of the reasons that people look at the church and go, why would I want to be a Christian? I mean, I know some Christians, and you should see what they do. And Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. He he wanted no part of it. And so some things that we can learn from this passage tonight. When you have great steps of faith, you can count on some good fights to come as well. When Abram was in the land, he may have been poor, he may have been broke, he may have had nothing, but he was in the middle of God's will. And that is always a good place to be, no matter what you have or don't have, practically speaking. He was always marked by his tent, and he was marked by his altar. Last time as we looked at verses 7 and 8, the Lord appeared to him and said, Look to your descendants, I will give this land. And the moment that promise is made, the very next thing that Abram does is build an altar. When he gets to Egypt, there's no building any altars. That would be forbidden. So Abram said, I'm going to be kind of a closet Christian, if you will. I'm going to be a closet believer in Yahweh, Lord of hosts. I'm going to kind of put my faith on the back burner. I'm not really going to speak of it because I'll get in trouble. If I want to stay here, I've got to be silent about my relationship with God. Any place that you stay where you have to be silent about your relationship with God is not a good place. If that's one of the requirements, you shouldn't stay there. You need to pick up and go. And this is everywhere from relationships, men and women, ladies, secret to finding your husband. If he's not interested in God, he'll never be interested in you. Because he can't be interested in you the way he needs to be interested in you unless he is interested in God. Oh, he might be able to provide a great living, a good house, a nice car. But if you want a man who will love you and give his life for you, that is a biblical trait. That's not the world's trait. You you see, these things all picture kind of who we are in Christ even though this is almost 2,000 years before Jesus would be born. Abram was a, was a stranger. He was a pilgrim. He didn't belong to this world. When he dwelled in that tent, it was like he was saying to God, look, I'd rather live in a tent with you than in a mansion with the world. And he forgot that lesson. He said, no, I, I, think I, I think I want the mansion, actually. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 and 12 says this, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrim, pilgrims to abstain from the fleshly lusts which war against your soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, that they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. In other words, God is expecting us to live our lives amongst heathen peoples, in such a way that ultimately even the heathen people recognize that we love God more than we love this world. Abram forgot that lesson. 
when he pitched his tent at Bethel, the house of God. He was running away from Ai, the city of ruin. In other words, he was running towards God. And now he's running back towards the world. And probably many of you know some people who walk with the Lord and then they start running back to the world. People that, that once seemingly had a vibrant prayer life, you could find them at church, you, you could hear them talking about the things of the Lord, and then all of a sudden, instead of running towards the house of God, towards Bethel, they were running back towards Ai, towards ruin. Very often, if you're really walking with the Lord, that walk of faith is going to lead you to trouble. It's going to lead you to test. And sometimes it's actually God causing those things, and sometimes it's God allowing those things. But both will happen. So Abram takes this great step of faith. And you know, we kind of almost instantaneously think, well, why would God allow famine in the land the moment they get there? There's a couple of things that are in play. One of them is, did God allow the famine or did God cause it? Because it could be either. In this case, I believe that God simply allowed it. Have you ever noticed the things that you fight the hardest for are also the most worthy of having? When you have to fight for your marriage, when you have to fight for your children, when you have to fight for your country, when you've got to fight to actually represent the Lord, when you have to battle, there, there's something that happens in battle. There, there's that sense of accomplishment that as you go through those trials, as you go through those struggles, you realize that it was worth it. It was worth the battle. It was worth the fight. And we have no record of Abram actually facing any famine while he was at Ur, the Chaldees, while he was with the heathens, he didn't have any problems. And probably I think if I were to ask most of you, when you were not walking with the Lord, it seemed like you didn't have that many problems. And then you give your life to the Lord, and what happens? All of a sudden, things start coming your way. You end up with all kinds of difficulties and problems you didn't have before because the enemy is trying to get you to abandon your faith. Trying to get you to walk away from the Lord. God's trying to test it. The enemy's trying to crush it. And so those tests often follow those triumphs. And I think sometimes one of the greatest enemies we face is ourselves. Amen? That's kind of like our little things that we hang on to. Our, our self-accomplishment. Our self-pride. When you win a victory, sometimes you get a little overconfident. You start, almost start believing your own press. You start telling yourself, you know, I can defeat any enemy at any time. You know, I, I get a little scared when people start saying, to me, well, you know, I'm just going to go get the devil. <laughs> I wouldn't challenge him to a fight if I were you. That's not a wise thing. He's very powerful. Believe that greater is he who's in you than he who's in this world. Absolutely. But you don't want to be challenging the devil to a fight. That's not a wise thing to do. Yes, in him you are more than conquerors. Through him who loves you. But you'll have enough battles without picking them. Without actually starting them. Without 
poking the enemy in the chest and saying, I'm going to come after you. And while it's true, we need to stand fast. And while it's true, we can take ground from the enemy. Being boisterous about it, being prideful about it, being arrogant about it, is never a wise thing. Just fight the fight, keep your head down, and rest and trust in the Lord. And in fact, there's a principle that's found there in 1 Corinthians 10. If you want to turn there, you can. I'll read it to you from verse 12 there in 1 Corinthians 10. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And we are standing. We're standing in Christ. We are moving forward. We're taking some ground from the enemy. Um, But it's God that's doing that work in us. It's him that really is our source of strength. And it goes on there in verse 13, For no temptation is overtaking you except that which is common to man. But in it God is faithful and not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Notice it doesn't say he will make necessarily a way for you to whoop up on the enemy but that you'll be able to escape the temptation, to get out of the way, get out of harm's way. You need to be wise when you're fighting battles. Be careful when you're fighting. There's a warning that says, take heed. Be careful. There's some lessons from Abraham's life here in the furnace. First and foremost, once you've won a victory, be careful because the next thing that's likely going to happen is you're going to get attacked or you're going to get a test or maybe both you might get both those things you might end up in that place where you're going to actually really have to trust the lord god didn't want abram to become proud didn't want him to become lifted up or self-confident and so he puts him into the furnace of testing he says okay we're gonna we're gonna steal your resolve One of the main ways that you actually grow in faith is when God allows your faith to be tested. When when you're looking at the things that are going on in your life and you've gone through those those moments where it seems like the valley of shadow of death is the only place you can take a morning walk. And then all of a sudden you realize that God has been faithful. Every time you've walked into that valley, he's brought you out the other end. But it hasn't been easy. It's been difficult. It's been hard. Also, a thing that you see here is Abraham basically runs away from the problem. In the life of the believer, usually what happens when you run away from the problem is the problem runs with you. You're going to find out that that problem chases you wherever you go. If you've got some kind of bad attitude, you've got some habit that you've picked up, you've got something in your life that isn't supposed to be there, it's a trouble, it's not a triumph. When you have those types of things and you run from them, you almost always will find out they followed you. Because the problem's you, the problem's me, the problem's us. And you can't run faster than they can. Your problems will keep up with you. Because they're internal. They're right there with you wherever you go. So instead of remaining in the land and remaining in faith, he went down to Egypt, the world's way. 
Throughout the Bible, Egypt is a symbol of the world system. It's also a symbol of bondage. It is the chief typology that we have in, in the Bible with regard to the, the false system that is this world that's controlled, in essence, by the devil. We call it the world. Matter of fact, you, you fight three enemies, the world, your own flesh, and the devil. Throughout the Old Testament, Egypt was a picture of the type of the world. And so he ran away from where God wanted him to be and towards where God did not want him to be. That's what happens when Christians take up drinking. That's what happens when they take up uh, habits that belong not to the child of God. When we try and keep sin in our lives, that's running down to the world. That's going the way of the world. And it didn't work out for Abraham, and it will not work out for you or me either. In Deuteronomy chapter 11, there in verse 10, it says this, For the land which you go to possess is not like the land of Egypt from which you have come. This is God now speaking to the children of Israel after they've been delivered, and they're now coming back to the land of Canaan, the land that you're going, it's not like where you came from. When you were there, you sowed your seed, and you had to water it by foot. You had to go collect water like you water a vegetable garden. But the land that you cross over to and possess is a land of hills and valleys, which drinks the water from the rain of heaven, a land for which the Lord your God cares, and the eyes of your Lord your God is always on it, from the beginning of the year to the very end. He says, look, you had to work extra hard because you were in the world. And as a believer, when you run down to Egypt, you're going to find yourself working really, really, really hard to stay there. It's going to be tough. I talk to people all the time. I wish I'd have never taken this job. I don't know what I was thinking. I talked to both men and women. Well, we, ended, we, we got married and she was not a believer or he was not a believer and we're unequally yoked and it's hard. When you don't listen to the Lord and you wander to Egypt, it's going to be hard. Scripture says the way of the transgressor is hard. The existence of someone who doesn't do things God's way, who knows better, is hard. And Abram found that out the hard way. When the people went to Jerusalem, they went up. But when they went to Egypt, they went down. The city of peace is up. The place of the world is down. And nothing's changed since these words were written. Up is the Lord and down is the world. Spiritually speaking, going down, down to Egypt is, is really kind of a, a sign of doubt on our part. And that's exactly what's going on here in Abram's life. He's doubting the goodness of the Lord. Notice what he does. You see, instead of trusting God, we're going to die if we stay here. Who sent Abram to Canaan? God. It was God's job to preserve Abram and his family. But Abram did not believe that God was going to do that, so Abram took matters into his own hands. And then in taking matters into his own hands, he has to compromise his own integrity. 
his wife's integrity, and he has to do things the world's way. And so this is a lesson for us. When you go down to Egypt, you will ultimately have to compromise the things of the Lord, and you will end up doing things that you never thought you would do. Not a good thing. And praise the Lord for his word, because he warns us, he tells us. It's like, Jeff, that's the world. Don't go that way. Isaiah 30, verses 1 and 2. Woe to the rebellious children, says the Lord, who take counsel, but not of me. Ouch. Who devise plans, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin. Who walk down to Egypt, who have not asked my advice to strengthen themselves in the strength of Pharaoh and trust in the shadow of Egypt. That's the prophet Isaiah some 1,500 years later. Jotting down what Abram would have said to him if he were standing right there. Don't do it. It was a really bad idea. You know, sometimes when you see those difficult circumstances, we're kind of slow on the uptake sometimes, aren't we? What God was actually trying to do is like, Abram, pack up your wife and leave right now. And Abram's going, have you seen how many sheep and donkeys and camels? And we have pots of meat and there's leeks and there's onions and we've really got it pretty good here. Yeah, sure, Sarai has to live in Pharaoh's house and not with me, but you know. That's what compromise does. Pretty soon you're going, well, this is, this is the best I can do. God wants his best for us. Faith moves the direction of peace and hope. But unbelief moves the direction of restlessness and fear and rebellion to the things of God. You can always tell when you're moving in the direction of faith, it results in peace. It is the peace of God that guards your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. That restlessness, that fear, the fear of man in this case. Making haste, making poor decisions, puts you in harm's way. It gets you extra times of testing. I don't know about you, I don't need any extra tests. I get enough when I'm doing good. I don't want to give God another reason. It's like, well, he's not learned this one, so let's let him have another test. You know, sometimes I think we, we forget that we have a little hand in this. That's why I, I both love and despise James chapter 1. Count it all joy, brethren, when you fall into diverse trials. When I have a diverse trial because God allowed it, because I need a test, that's one thing. But when I have a diverse trial, when I have a multifaceted, a multicolored trial, when I have a diverse trial because I put myself in harm's way, that's just me not being too bright. That's me forgetting to ask God, God, what do you think about this? That's not taking his counsel. That's kind of doing things my own way. You see, he wants me to be perfected. And that passage there in the first eight verses of James chapter 1 reminds us there's a benefit to having your faith tested, of course. 
that you would be complete and lacking nothing, that, that you would not be double-minded, that you wouldn't be unstable. You know, we, we want to have all those things, but we can avoid a lot of those unnecessary trials by just simply doing what God says. Being obedient. And I would put it to you this way. Because God is in control of all circumstances, you are way safer in a famine in the middle of God's will than you will ever be in a palace out of his will. You're way safer in a famine with God with you in the famine than you are in a palace without God. It's one of the parts of my testimony. You know, Connie and I lived a life to where we had those types of things, but we were not safe. There was a false sense of security in the palace that is the world. In money and affluence. And again, there's nothing wrong with having all kinds of money and plenty of houses. And if you got RVs, God bless you, let me borrow them. It, it's, it's not that. It's that if you trust in those things, if your hope is in those things, if your security is in those things, if your safety is in those things, if ultimately your, your mental ability to think is based on what you have and what you can do, then ultimately you're saying you don't need God. And God's a jealous God. And so what does he do? He begins to give you some issues with your stuff. And all of a sudden, you're no longer being served by the stuff. You're having to serve the stuff. You're having to serve the things that once served you. That's a dangerous, dangerous place to be. Because God loves us enough to say, mm, well, if you want to trust in that, you go ahead. But I'm going to show you it's untrustworthy. D.L. Moody said it this way, he said, the will of God will never lead you where the grace of God cannot keep you. The will of God won't lead you someplace that the grace of God can't keep you. So if you feel like that you're not being kept by the grace of God, then you're probably in the wrong place. If God's grace is not sufficient, then you're probably in the wrong place. You need to maybe rethink where you're at. But Abraham is going to put himself in harm's way so much that he's going to have to deal with some severely problematic people. And let me just tell you, when you enter the school of faith, you actually can't drop out. You're either in or out. So once you're in, you can count on God correcting your problems. He, he, he will adjust your attitude, so to speak. Those of you that are parents, you know that you know, we talk to our children, you don't want me to have to adjust your attitude. What we're saying is you're thinking the wrong way and we're going to fix that for you unless you fix it yourself. God does the same thing. He only lets us go so far because he loves us. He says, mm, Jeffrey, we're going to have to adjust that. And so what happens normally? He makes it very, very difficult to where I start to think the right way because I was trusting in the wrong thing and he wants me to trust in him. And so the first thing that we see in these steps of faith, because these changes took place in Abraham's life. When he went to Egypt, he immediately had to change from one way of thinking to another way of thinking in four very significant ways. The first of which is, he went from trusting God to scheming. I'll just help God out. You know, God's not quite keeping up here, so let me help him. 
just tell Pharaoh that you're my sister. Because I don't want it to be bad for me. I'm not really thinking about you, Sarai, but for me, I want it to be okay. So he's scheming. He's looking at where he's at in the promised land. He's going, well, I don't like God's promises, so I'm going to take care of this myself. That's scheming against God. God's made a promise. God's good for his promises. But we've got to stay and trust those promises. Faith is, is really, in essence, borne out by living a life without scheming against God. If you really trust him, then you trust him. You don't have to work kind of a backdoor way. And one of the fun things about being a camp director is listening to children try and justify why they've done what they've done. It is sometimes, it, it, it's really, you've got a serious thing going on and you're doing everything you can to keep from busting up laughing. It's like, seriously, that's the best you can think of? I've had young men who are naked, wrapped in duct tape in the snow, and they say, well, he was snoring. I'm saying, so your answer to his snoring was to take him and duct tape him without his clothes on and throw him in the snow. Well, it was really bad. It's like, do you realize how dumb that sounds? Now imagine our things that we try and tell God, well, this is why I did that, Lord. I mean, after all, you weren't taking care of the situation. So I had to take matters into my own hands. And I gave my wife away. You see, we kind of think that children sound pretty silly when they take their friend and don't have his clothes on, throw him out in the snow, duct tape. But Abraham, who is the number one example of a life of faith in the book of Hebrews, he's the top. Gives his wife away to Pharaoh to save his own skin. Life of faith is living without scheming. A second change. If you got to lie, you're in trouble. Abram moved from confidence. Look how confident Abram was. He took a more than 1,000 mile journey, more than half of which is across some of the worst desert on the face of the earth, to a land that he had never seen. He walked with confidence 1,000 miles on foot to get to a land he had never seen, and now all of a sudden he's afraid God doesn't have him. God's no longer on the throne. He, he went from confidence to fear. When you're in the middle of God's will, you don't have to fear. That doesn't mean everything's going to go perfect, that every single thing that happens to you is necessarily even going to be good. But the truth is, fear and faith do not peacefully coexist. And you usually have one or the other. And it's, I can tell you in my own life, it's absolutely true. When I find myself getting anxious or afraid or something's going on to where it's like, Lord, what if? Anybody else in here do the what if thing? I'm like the king of what ifs. I can come up with 7,000 reasons that something can go bad. It's like I should have been an attorney, I think, or something. You know, it's like I just literally, I just go down one to ask Connie. I go down one thing after another. Well, okay, all right, so we solved that one. But what about this? And then what about that? And then what about this? And what about that? And what about this? And she goes... Are you walking by faith? Well, 
No. I'm just thinking through all the possibilities. Sometimes that's a lack of faith on my part. Sometimes that's me going, well, God, I don't know if you got this or not. Even pastors do this. I see some of the pastors. Dave's back there. He's going, yep, me too. He can't have fear and faith at the same time. They don't dwell in the same heart. You know, all that verse that almost probably every one of you in here knows, you know, trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean on your own understanding. You know, that's a, that's a faith verse. Acknowledge the Lord in all your ways and he will direct your paths. Don't be wise in your own eyes. You know, sometimes our wisdom in our own eyes and in our own strength, those things that we want to see happen, ultimately we have to say, look, it's like, man, am I trusting God with this or am I not trusting God with this? Or do I just have fear that maybe things aren't going to work out? You know, the Lord is our light. The Lord is our salvation. The fear of the Lord is a strong confidence is what Proverbs tells us. God had repeatedly said to Abram, I've got this. I will take care of this. And Abram's now going, I don't know if you got this. I don't know if you're going to take care of this. And so he starts to believe that they will things. He goes from I will to they will. He goes from trusting the I wills of the Lord to believing the they wills of the world. Well, they'll kill me. Or if I do what they say, they'll let me live. The third change that took place in Abraham is he moved from others, thinking about other people, to self. You can see it in how he treats his own wife. Instead of worrying about her and being concerned for her, he's now, well, they'll kill me. They're going to harm me. And you do what's right for me. When you are overly concerned with your own self and not concerned for others, that is a bad place to be. One of the greatest things that happens when we give our lives to Jesus is we become other-centric. Just exactly as Jesus was. Jesus counted not his own life dear, but despised the shame. He just said, if I've got to go to the cross, great, I'll do it for Jeff. And Abram's now, well, you know, I don't want to go hungry. So, take Sarai. You want to be in the middle of God's blessings, and you have to be a blessing to others. That's why it's so contrary for a church or any believer individually to not be concerned with the welfare of others. It's the chief concern of Jesus. He came that we might have life, and that life abundant. Yeah, if Sarah had, had become one of Pharaoh's wives, what would have happened? To the Redeemer. Think about it for a second. She will ultimately be the one who bears the lineage of the Lord Jesus. Even though they're childless at this point in time. Imagine what would have happened. Abraham's about to blow the whole promise of the Messiah. Now he's not going to be able to do it because God is God. 
But his own decisions put at risk the lineage of Messiah. That's what faith can do. You can go from being in the promised land to being in the trash can pretty quick. We don't let God rule very often. He just simply has to overrule to accomplish his purposes, but we suffer the consequences of that. God never intended for Abram and Sarai to to spend this time down in Egypt, but they did it nonetheless. And a fourth and the final thing, notice this. Abram went from being a blessing and bringing blessings to others to bringing judgment. He brought judgment on his own family. He brought judgment on his own people. Instead of being in the will of God, he's out of the will of God. And so the people that are around him are also going to be out of the will of God. He's the leader. This is the guy that convinced everybody to pack up from Haran and go to the promised land of Canaan. Now here's the good news. God forgave Abram. And God was faithful to his promise to Abram in spite of Abram's unfaithfulness. Because he cannot, as Scripture plainly says, as Paul writes to Timothy, God cannot deny himself. He is faithful even when we are faithless. And I thank God for that because there have been times in my own life I, it's like, Lord, if you hadn't have done it, it wouldn't have got done because I was on the wrong path, going the wrong way, doing the wrong thing, and you overruled my dumb decisions and, and still put me in a place to where I could be used of you. But everything that Abram received in Egypt, later in his life, everything Everything he got in the world gave him problems later in life. And we're going to see that going forward. You see that faith that he had when he faced the famine and we got into these these fights. Even though Abram didn't do it perfectly, God still used it in Abram's life to shape him and make him the man that he wanted him to be. And in that sense, some of the beauty of this passage is just like our life in Christ, Abram's life with God was a series of new beginnings. Anybody thankful for that? Oh, hallelujah, I am. I'm thankful that God is a God of new beginnings. That I wake up every single day, and you do too as a believer, his mercy is new every single morning. When you make up, wake up in the morning, God's not going, well, I'm just done. No more mercy for Jeff. You're going to get exactly what you earned today. No, his mercy is new every morning. Now, he, he may dispense that mercy according to his justice, but there's mercy there, even when I don't deserve it. That his grace is unmerited favor is always on his children. And the secret operative word there for grace is unmerited favor. It isn't earned. It's not deserved. I don't deserve it. Abram did not deserve the grace of God. We have an Old Testament picture here of God's grace being poured out in someone's life. And me, you know, I always look at these stories. Okay, well, if I was God, what would I have done? I told you, I think linearly. What would I have done? Well, I would have killed Abram. And I would have given Sarai a husband that really appreciated her. That's, that's how I would have done it. 
Now, praise God I'm not God, amen? Because I would have messed up the plan for the Messiah in doing so. I would have been perfectly right to do it if you look at it from a justice standpoint. What did poor Sarai do to deserve this knucklehead? Nothing. She was just being faithful and following her husband, and what happens? She says, I'm going to live with who? Can you imagine what she was thinking? You did not just do this. But he did. And God still kept his promise anyway. He's going to make him a father of a nation. He's going to make him the father of a multitude. The Messiah is going to come forth from this knucklehead. You ought to be saying, thank you, Jesus, for grace about right now. Amen? I read the story of Abram. I'm like, hallelujah. Because I wouldn't have done any better than Abram. I probably would have messed it up even further. A couple of things to wrap this up and then we'll pray. Worship team's going to come back up. Look at some of the things that Abraham received there in Egypt that would later cause him trouble. Abram actually got wealthy while he was there. He had great wealth. And he's going to take it back with him. And because of that great wealth, he and Lot are going to have to separate. We'll see that when we get to chapter 13. Guess where Hagar is from? Egyptian maidservant. She's going to bring division and hatred and sorrow into their home. Having a taste of Egypt, Lot started to measure everything by what he remembered about Egypt. This is one of the problems that we have as parents. When we show our children the world, Sometimes they long for the world because we showed them the world. We've got to be careful to not show our kids the world. They wanted more of an Uncle Abram, you know. I was like, well, you know, he's kind of old. and What does he know? And so the practical lessons are this. There are no benefits whatsoever to disobedience. None. You may think there are. You might stave off a little bit of famine for a time, but it won't end up well. And the lesson is really this. Never, ever, ever abandon your altar. Ever. Don't ever give your heart over to Egypt. Don't, don't leave your altar to go after the things of the world. We have to face the, the furnace of faith. We have to fight through the famines that we'll go through, and you will go through them. I will go through them. Knowing that the, the fighting, the faith fights, is God's way of refining us, ultimately working out some golden things in our lives. Amen? Would you stand and we'll close together in prayer? Prayer team's going to come up. Maybe you've got something going on, maybe there's some fight some attraction of the world that you want to pray with somebody about, pastors will come forward, have them available for the last 10 minutes until 8 o'clock or so. Just come on up. Father, thank you. Thank you for the picture of redemption in Abram's life, Lord. 
But you didn't cast him out. You didn't cast him off, even though he made some knuckle-headed decisions that affected his family and your people. The Lord brought even some problems to him that he would deal with the rest of his days. But you were faithful. Lord, you redeemed to the uttermost, as you always do. And so we thank you, God, that we're in that lineage, Lord, that, that we too worship the God of Abram, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of Israel, our, our King, the Messiah, our Lord Jesus, came from this man. And so, Lord, we bless you for overruling and overriding our mistakes. When we're in that furnace, fire's blazing and the fight's on, Lord, help us to turn to you in faith. Knowing that perfect love that you give us casts out all fear. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.